Welcome to the 273rd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Pamela McCordick, author of the nonfiction book, This Could Be Important, My Life and Times with the Artificial Intelligentsia. Stay tuned for the interview. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to take a moment. Um, Obviously, if you're listening to this and you're in the United States, you're aware of the current national conversation about race and racial equity and the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, and others. And uh, I actually don't know really what I'm going to say here, except that uh, I grew up um, in uh, Macon, Georgia. Um, I was born in 1967. Um, I'm a white guy, so I'm coming at it from that perspective. Um, but I think the current conversation that's going on in this country is a needed one. Um, and in terms of this podcast, I just wanted to take a moment in each of the upcoming episodes and focus on what this podcast is about, reading and writing, and just mention a uh, author of color um, that people can take a look at and read their books. Um, and the first one that we're going to mention is Walter Mosley, um, mystery writer. And if you're interested, I'll have a link in the show notes. I did interview Walter on episode 169 of the Reading and Writing podcast. Um, and just a little bit of background about Walter Mosley. He's one of the most prolific and successful African-American mystery writers. He is the 2016 recipient of the Mystery Writers of America's Grandmaster Award. And Mosley has thus far written 14 mysteries about the iconic African-American detective Easy Rollins. This character is inspired by Mosley's father, experienced as a World War II veteran who moved from South to Los Angeles in the 1940s. In 1948, Rollins' debut in Devil in a Blue Dress, in which he accepts a $100 offer to locate a missing white woman who keeps the company of black jazz musicians in South Central Los Angeles. Untrained and unlicensed, his success stems from his knowledge of the community. Denzel Washington started starred in the Devil in a Blue Dress movie based on Mosley's book. Um, and also, I got some of that information, and I'll have a link in the show notes, from a uh, blog from the Los Angeles Public Library about African-American mystery writers. So anyway, just wanted to spot, spotlight um, each episode, um, a very brief um, spotlight on uh writer of color that you could go and take a look and read some of their books. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm is the first and only company which lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Support your favorite local bookstore and you can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated list from the people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. There's a special offer now for reading and writing podcast listeners. Get three audiobooks for the price of one, $14.99, 
with your first month of membership. Just use the code RWPODCAST. Again, that's Libro.fm, purchasing audiobooks from your local bookstore, and use the code RWPODCAST. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Pamela McCordick. Her memoir, This Could Be Important, My Life and Times with the Artificial Intelligentsia, has just been published. Her book, Machines Who Think, originally published in 1979, is considered a classic nonfiction book about the development of artificial intelligence. Pamela, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your memoir, This Could Be Important, My Life and Times with the Artificial Intelligentsia, can you just tell us a little bit about your memoir and, and well, what they would expect to, to get if they read it? Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, first of all, I should explain the title. Um, it really refers to the fact that I spent many decades pulling on the sleeves of public intellectuals and saying, you know, artificial intelligence, this could be important. And of course, this was met with great laughter. That nothing could have been sillier to them than the idea of machines thinking. So that's how come the title. <laughs> Great. And anyway, I happened by sheer good fortune to be in at almost the beginning of artificial intelligence. Uh, I was asked to work on a book, <clears throat> the first uh, book of readings in artificial intelligence. And boy, that, that kind of gave me the bug. And I stayed in touch with the field, and finally I started writing about it, and uh, the rest is history. But I do want to say that this is a book about people. It's not a book about machines. Um, machines who think had a lot of technology in it. This has very little, except when I have to explain something and say, this works and that doesn't yet, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so the idea of artificial intelligence has been around for a while, but can you talk about the more modern beginnings of artificial intelligence that you've studied and written about? Yes, of course. Uh, the first working program, which is considered modern artificial intelligence, is something called the logic theorist. And this was a little program that proved theorems and logic. And it did it like a human being, because this was done by cognitive scientists. What they wanted to do was model how human beings think. Uh, they weren't out to build a, a killer logic theory, a proving machine. So um, that was it. They arrived at this conference in 1956 with this working machine, working program, and uh, everybody had lots of ideas about how AI should be done, but this this actually worked. And and who were some of the personalities and and people who started AI decades ago that you write about in your memoir? Well, there are four founding fathers, you might say, uh, Alan Newell and Herbert Simon, who were both at Carnegie Tech, now Carnegie Mellon University, uh, at that time. Marvin Minsky at MIT and John McCarthy at Stanford. And each of those uh, was responsible for ripples that, w that went out from their work 
to build centers of artificial intelligence. Now AI is everywhere, but they were the beginning. And are there any funny or interesting anecdotes that stand out from you from those early years of AI and AI research? <laughs> well, there are lots of them, but maybe one of the best since your uh, uh, podcast is devoted to reading and writing is the whole issue of uh, speech understanding. Uh, you know, it's one thing to see text which has periods, question marks, uh, paragraphs, capital letters at the beginning of new sentences and so on. That That's pretty easy to understand. Well, it's not easy, but it's it's easier than continuous human speech. So one of the guys who invented the first best uh, program that understands continuous human speech was at Carnegie Mellon. And he called everybody in. I was there then. Uh, he called everybody in to, to see a demo. And we all sat down and you know, I was chatting with one of the founding fathers, Herb Simon. We were talking about, you know, what we'd done over the summer and so on and so forth. And we talked the way human beings talk, which is to say we laughed, interrupted ourselves with laughter. We waved our hands. Uh, there was a lot unsaid that we both transmitted to each other. OK, so the demo begins. And what does it do? It crashes immediately. And we're kind of not surprised at that because that's the way it goes with uh, new programs, especially complicated new programs. And we all wait around while the wizards are tuning up again. And finally, it works. And it's, it's astounding. It has a thousand words of vocabulary. A thousand. This is insane. And, um, you know, it's very good. Okay. So it gets all kinds of notice from, uh, no, I did I take that back. It doesn't get any notice. We try to interest the local papers. We try to, and we know television won't be interested. No notice. But John McCarthy, whom I mentioned just a moment ago, John McCarthy says to his friends in Silicon Valley, in, in particular the uh, San Jose Mercury News, hey, this is really a breakthrough. And the Mercury News goes crazy. They, they realize how important this is. Well, along comes another journal that wants to do a story on this, and this is the National Enquirer. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the young scientist says to my husband, who was then the chair of the department, uh, look, I don't want to talk to these people, and they're threatening to just break in anyway. What can I do? So my husband, who is a theoretical mathematician, says, don't worry. I'll take care of it. So he calls the National Enquirer. He says, hello, I hear you're interested in our work. Now, what would you like to know about the Kung Traub algorithm? What can I tell you? You know, on and on with this high-level math. Well, they hung up on him, and that was the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> So so you mentioned earlier this computer program in 1956, and I just want to point out for listeners in case they, they haven't um, kind of follow what you're talking about, that we're talking about this initial AI research that was done long before the powerful computer and, and um, microcomputers that we're using now, which, you know, people pointed out that we have more power in an iPhone and and more programming power than what sent uh, sent us to the moon, and oh. also with cloud computing, 
um, and even before the early internet. So I'm, I'm just curious, given that, that backdrop, um, what do you think has changed about AI in the past six or seven years and, and, and really in the last two or three years that it's become such a technology trend and buzzword? Well, the big thing really is technology. Yay for the engineers. Because the fundamentals of machine learning were developed in the mid-80s, the mid-1980s, but they couldn't be implemented because the technology just wasn't there yet. Well, now the technology is, and it's getting better all the time. So that part is great. And as uh, people learn how to uh, apply these things that were discovered or developed in the 1980s, um, oh, they can go further. And many of the things you see or hear are really not breakthroughs in terms of the fundamentals. They're new apps. Look, I can make machine learning do this. I can make machine learning do that, that kind of thing. Sure. And, and you know, we routinely hear, or um, I guess I'd say, you know, people who follow um you know, tech news with any regularity routinely here, like there was a, there was an announcement just in the last um, month or so um, that uh, some of the work that the, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Google is doing in healthcare that they've used machine learning in terms of looking at um, uh, bone scans or mammograms and, and being able to, to, uh, read those with more accuracy than, than a human. So you, you see those types of advances happening. Yeah. There, well, there's some question about that. Uh, the, in what way? Most cautious, cautious thing to say is they read as well as the best experts. They're not better. And, and, and what, why do you say that? Uh, just a, a test that was run questioning these results and the, I think by the British, right. and the, the Brits said, yeah, uh, these programs uh, read as well as the best experts, but they don't read better than the best experts. Right. right. So, so, so where, do you, where do you see artificial intelligence headed in, say, like the next 10 years, as opposed to, say, like a 25 or 30-year time horizon? Jeff, you are not speaking to a lunatic the the frank and perfect answer is I have no idea, and neither does anybody else. Interesting. Well, uh, of, I mean, well, can you of, can you can you theorize, or what what is your what is your 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 best guess in terms of uh, <laughs> what what I, I, I'm just I'm just thinking in terms of like commonplace applications. What what do you what do you think we'll we'll see? You know, I, I'd like to use an example that I think is just emblematic of AI, and it only was publicized a few months ago. That is, at Caltech, uh, a man who was, uh, couldn't use his arm, he was paraplegic, was able to lift a robotic arm just by thinking about it. And this was a combination of artificial intelligence and engineering and robotics and a whole uh, neuroscience, of course. Well, uh, <laughs> maybe a week later, I saw somebody 
equally paraplegic, walking in an exoskeleton, that is almost a frame, a, a skeleton outside his body that could hold him up and move thanks to his thoughts. Now, this is astounding. It's reading thoughts. And your heart just leaps up on behalf of people who are injured this way and now have a chance to live a quasi-normal life. But then you step back and you think, wait a minute, reading the mind? Really? You know, that could lead to some very interesting problems. <laughs> so that that leads me into my next question. Um, I, I'm sure you're aware that there are many people in um, the technology industry, including Elon Musk, who have warned about the dangers of artificial intelligence. What do you think about those dangers? Well, I, I just gave you an example. Yes, the dangers exist. They're not, they're not non-existent. But what I'd also like to say is that this has been something the field itself has been aware of for the last 15 years, and not just aware of, but working on. Uh, there was a very visionary president of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, which is the professional group. And he got together a committee and he said, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what the, what the issues are. Let's have a meeting and say if we, see if we can say, this can be done, but that can't be done. That mustn't be done. Let's forbid this. And this has been a project over the last 15 years, not just of uh, subsequent committees, but there isn't a university in the developed world that doesn't have a study of the ethics of AI, uh, the problems of AI, the human cost of AI, and so on. We're not ignoring it. We're not ignoring it. But we are in a very fluid situation right now. Interesting. Interesting. Well, well, I know in addition to writing nonfiction about artificial intelligence, you've also written fiction and had multiple novel novels published. What advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening? <laughs> oh my! Well, the uh, the uh, universe of publishing is changing so much; one hardly knows how to begin. Uh, when I began writing, what you did was you found an agent, which wasn't all that hard. This, I'm talking now the late 1960s. Uh, they would uh, represent your book. They would send it to editors that they knew were looking for a book like yours. Uh, maybe you would hit, maybe you wouldn't. I had one very aggressive agent who used to uh, have auctions for my books so that books would go up at a certain hour, you know, he'd send the proposal round and then he'd say, I'm having an auction at the following time and so on. Well, you know, I was just a mid-list writer, but that was an okay thing to do. And yeah, he, he did very, very well for me. Things have changed enormously. Uh, publishing isn't the same as it was. And luckily the thing that comes back to me from that is Yes, the gatekeepers are not as eager as they once were, but at least there is self-publishing, and there are ways of getting your book out into the world that didn't exist before, and they're pretty good. That's great. 
So what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that made an impression on you and that you would recommend? Oh, my goodness. Um, I tend to go backwards in reading. So I'm just rereading Toni Morrison's Beloved. And I am astounded at how beautiful the writing is, how good it is, how by bone chilling it is oh my goodness bone chilling that's the only word for it um so i tend to go back and look at the classics um i surely have read more recent books but that one sticks with me now because i've just finished it sure sure well if someone is interested in learning more about your memoir how can they find you online um i have a a kind of moribund website right now. I've been so busy writing the book and putting the finishing touches on the book that I really haven't caught up with my, my website, but the book is available as an ebook on Amazon and uh, also through Carnegie Mellon, the publishers, and you can order uh, a print copy uh, that just takes a little longer. You can get an ebook right now. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Pamela McCordick. Her memoir, This Could Be Important, My Life and Times with the Artificial Intelligentsia, has just been published. So go buy a copy. And Pamela, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, thanks for, thanks for talking to me. Great, great. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.